Hello, everyone, and welcome to Real Atheology, a philosophy of religion podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Watkins, and I am joined today by two of my new co-hosts. If you guys could go ahead and introduce yourselves. So, my name's John Lopolato. I have previously been known online as the Counter-Apologist. I have about four to five years, I think, experience in doing the online uh, counter-apologetics and philosophy of religion uh, hobby, I guess. That's a good word for it. And I'm Ben Baver. Uh, I'm a philosophy major at the University of Pittsburgh, which, not to brag, is currently the best uh, place for philosophy. Uh, And uh, I've been getting into philosophy of religion for since I was around 13 um, when I started having questions about my faith in Christianity. Uh, and since then, I've become pretty involved in discussions on Facebook about religion. Uh, I'm an administrator of a Facebook group devoted to th- these sorts of discussions. Um, it's called Reason and Religion. That's basically it. Okay, guys, so let's, I guess, move on to the topic of discussion. Right, so today we are going to tackle the Kalam cosmological argument. Okay, and so for those who don't know, um, the Kalam cosmological argument is defended by um, some prominent people in the philosophy of religion. So it's, it's been repopularized by w- Dr. William Lane Craig. Um, but it actually has its roots in uh, Islamic scholarship. So it's a centuries-year-old uh, argument for sort of a, a, a first cause of the universe. So it's um, a cosmological argument, obviously, as, as the name, as name tells us. And that argument goes, first premise is whatever begins to exist as a cause, and then the second premise is the universe began to exist. So then it follows that the universe had a cause, and then from there there's a series of inferences saying that this cause, since it transcends time, must be timeless. Um, since it transcends space, it must be spaceless, eternal, immensely powerful. S- somehow the jump is made to personal. Um, that one's a little bit... <laughs> Um, that's that's at least how the argument roughly goes. Um, do y'all have any objections to that formulation of? That's more or less how Craig presents it. Sounds right to me. Yeah, no, that's basically the the three premises are the are the core of it. Um, I do think it's very important uh, to get into what exactly is meant by the phrase "begins to exist." Um, this actually has a four-part definition given by William Lane Craig um, in his published work on the on the argument. Um, so, to say something, uh, something, uh, an entity E comes into being at time t if and only if one E exists at t, two t is the first time at which E exists, three. There is no state of affairs in the actual world in which E exists timelessly. And four, E's existing at T is a tensed fact. We'll see 
later on as we get into uh, responding to the argument why uh, the this technical definition is actually quite crucial. Sounds like that, especially that fourth. Yes. Clay, it's a tense fact. So, so before before we get into all that, so what, what are our initial impressions of this argument? So what what is it? What does it set out to do? What do we think it does well? Uh, what do we think it doesn't do? So, what I think it does well is given intuitive understand that the that that something caused the universe that that makes that so there's an in, we all have this intuition that the universe could have not existed or that that um something could have brought the existence into being so that's kind of a that's the intuition that's being appealed to right well, just I, a common understanding of the argument right I think um, I think it's more basically the it's appealing to our intuitions about causation, right? It's things that begin to exist have a cause. Um, yeah. That is our general everyday experience. It's um, generally hard to reject premise one. Yeah, and scientists usually have the attitude that when they find that something began to exist, they have to look for a cause for that. They can't just say, "Oh, it happened." Uh, and yeah. not give any reason for that. So, yeah. It's funny. Uh, you made a, an interesting segue there. The You mentioned what uh, scientists want to do. I think one of the uh, things that drew me to the argument, at least from a counter-apologetic standpoint, was apologists seem to like this because it lets them talk about uh, advanced cosmology and physics. In and, a serious way. I'm sorry? In a serious way. It allows yes, in a very... Them... Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. William Lane Craig is absolutely phenomenal in his understanding uh, when he goes through to present very detailed uh, technical facts about modern cosmology. Um, and he does a pretty good job most of the time um, in how he presents it. I think the problems are more in the philosophical assumptions that he brings in to the physics. Uh -huh. um, it, but generally, like science is thought of as very caustic to religion, and this is a way for an apologist to kind of turn the tables. Um, I don't think that works. Yeah. Uh, typically, in the physics community, this is not viewed as a very good argument. Uh, even evangelical Christian physicists like Don Page, uh, he has a podcast interview with Randall Rouser, and he says right up front that he thinks the Kalam is a is a terrible argument. So I think we can start getting into uh, why. Yeah, well, so so uh, I, I kind of want to dissect it a little bit more in this because well, there's two big parts here. So uh, I think what it does well for one is is that initial whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. I think it does that well. That it's valid, deductively valid. Yeah, deductively valid. It has premises that are not obviously false, and a plausible account of them being true can be given. So there, so I think we can all agree that you know that part of the argument should be taken seriously. Um, but that only gets us to the universe having a cause. That's that's all that that argument does at that point. There's a, there's a second part. This the second stage where they start building what this cause is. 
And so, um, what, 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 how do we, I don't think that, I think that's the weakest part of the argument. I don't think that part works. I think that even if you grant the first and strongest part of the Kalam argument, that second part doesn't work and you don't get the conclusion that you really want. Well, I'm not so sure I agree. I think when you, so we were very careful to define begins to exist. Um, when they talk about universe, the way that is defined is all of causally connected physical reality um, yeah. that we experience, right? And so if you say that uh, all of space and time began to exist and they had a cause, and you've defined all of space and time as all causally connected uh, space and time events, therefore the cause of creating that space-time has to be transcended. It has to be non-spatial, timeless, extremely powerful. Um, so, I mean, it's going to get you to a lot of the aspects of a traditional classical theist god, I think. Um, and they typically present this as part of a cumulative case, right? Um, sure. This is this is part, and normally the first one in a uh, multi-part argument or debate. Uh, Opening uh, opening statement. So so if we if we grant it all in, in its in, in its form as as we get a sort of a deistic being, we get kind of uh, we don't get any moral attribute no, no. from a kalam. So we could get a watchmaker or intelligent design type concept of God, but we wouldn't get the being always worthy of our worship. We would fall short of that. There's, uh, this is kind of seen as like the gap problem. This is Hume's famous objection to teleological and cosmological arguments where he says, you know, like, look, even if we grant these arguments in their entirety, they don't establish a being that's all good or always worthy of our worship. He doesn't use those terms, but that's roughly how that argument goes. Um, but I, so, I'm trying to figure out where you and I disagree, John, in that, so I don't think the second part of that argument works, but you do think the second part of the argument works? I think it gets you most of the, most of the properties that they want to get. I think you, I think the weakest part, as you alluded to, is the idea of God being a personal, a personal being, excuse me, um, that, that seems like a very weak link, um, I think all that is generally appealed to is the fact that since it's timeless and spaceless that it would the only kind of thing that could be like that they they say would be a mind um which i think is kind of a weak uh, assumption but even if we didn't grant them the personal cause necessarily we grant it could be a personal cause and it gets you most of the uh you know an immaterial timeless spaceless cause that establishes something beyond the natural world and that's putting you on the road to theism so do we even think that makes sense so i'm moving i'm moving to a different question when i when i do this so we're saying so uh all of our experiences of causation are within time and within space and so this is nothing more than the well-worn interaction problem in the philosophy of mind 
we're going to say that there's a spaceless and timeless cause. What does that even mean? How does something spaceless and timeless causally interact with a spatially and temporally extended world? So are we even really willing to grant the coherence of um, a timeless, spaceless cause, a cause outside of time? Or, or how do y'all feel about that? Yeah, I don't know. I think part of the concept of causation might even be uh, that a cause precedes its effect in time. So I'm not sure if that's exactly the interaction problem, but it's, it's a problem. It, 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 it raises interesting questions. So, yeah. cause really what I'm getting at is, you know, we're, if, if we're going to be granting things to this argument here and we're going to be saying things about a controversial topics like causation are, you know, do we just kind of note these problems and, you know, leave them off to the side and say, okay, look, there's, it's definitely mysterious how we could have this weird sort of transcendent cause. But putting that aside, can we then make arguments for this mind, you know, all these properties that we also only have experience with in time? Like, do, do, do we allow these moves? Do we think we can, you know, make these inferences? If we're dealing with something so radically strange, what, so I think really what it is is that it's it's almost like a, a Sherlock move, right? Uh, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the case, right? And so when they've defined universe such as all of causally connected physical reality and you accept the premise that the universe began to exist, then you're stuck, Right, you you between this is a like you said this is a valid argument. So if you accept the first two premises, you're stuck with that conclusion. I think that's yeah, the point. Modus ponens, right? It's, right. it's valid via modus ponens, and so and so. I mean, if you accept the two premises, right, as with everything defined as as they have it, then you're stuck admitting that there must be something timeless and spaceless that can cause the universe to exist. Could could that be another material world, another no. space-time? No, could absolutely. No, because they define universe as all of causally connected uh, space-time. All, all, all the physical reality is really the way they will describe it. Okay. All right. Well, then that settles that. So... Well, so putting the interaction problem to the side, and we've we've granted the two parts of the argument, um, in its in its entirety, and we see that we get a being sort of short of um, a being always worthy of worship, but it gets all of the attributes that uh, theists traditionally want to get out of an argument. So where do we think we're starting from premise one? Do we? Yeah. Uh, John's <laughs> smiling. I can, I can tell right now. Uh, where do we, you know, can we reasonably deny premise one or is premise one something, uh, we often hear it defended. It underpins all of science. Like if you reject the first premise, well, then you just reject all of science. What do, what do we think? Well, I'm going to say, uh, so I reject the first premise 
but I accept most of the defenses that are given. So I reject it for a technical reason. I think I want one of the things I want to say. Uh, one of the ways they defend premise one is they say uh, something cannot come from nothing. Right? This is a uh, the general bedrock metaphysical principle that is appealed to. And what I find hilarious is that between the Christian and the atheist, or even the agnostic, um, the it is the atheist that is completely consistent in saying something cannot come from nothing, whereas the Christian thinks not only is it possible, but it did happen. They believe in a doctrine known as creation ex nihilo. Um, that something does. God created the universe from literally Literal nothing. nothing. Right. Literal nothing. Yeah. And this is, uh, I think, episode 12. Um, you and Justin had interviewed uh, Felipe Leon, who had mm -hmm. a very interesting response to this sort of <laughs> um, this sort of uh, idea or concept being coherent. Um, but the, the reason I reject premise one, even though I don't think something can come from nothing, is because of the technical definition of begins to exist, specifically part four, E's existing at T is a tensed fact, that commits you um, in what is known in the literature as the A theory of time, or the tensed well, theory of tensed time. Tensed theory of time. Yes. Um, and as uh, we'll get into, um, our best scientific evidence, if we follow the methods in... Uh, best practices of science, we will find that we have eliminated the tense theory of time. Uh, it is not at all our um, the best exclamation that comports with all of the scientific evidence. Uh, we would go with something like the tenseless theory or something that rejects both of them, but the argument specifically needs the tensed theory of time in order to work. And so for that technical reason, I reject premise one. So would it be fair to say that the – so to give some people some more background, there's the A theory and the B theory of time, a tensed version of time or a tenseless version of time. And so it's been something of a controversy in philosophy, um, which of these theories is true. Um, do we experience – is the past, the present, and the future distinct tenses? That's why the A theory or tensed uh, theory gets its name. Or is it more, is there, uh, is time more like a loaf of bread with slices in it? And so there's just before now and after now. And so we don't, the, the, the past and the future and the present are all equally real. So those are the, probably the, 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 the easiest ways to, to conceptualize these two views of time. Um, but, John, your claim is that, would it be fair to say that the B theory of time, the one that, if true, is not compatible with the Kalam, is the one that has the least tensions with our best scientific hypotheses? Correct. So this goes back um, all the way to the turn of the, into the 20th century, back in Einstein with uh, special and general relativity. Um so, uh, important point on the B theory, there actually is no present. Uh, there is only tenseless moments in time. The B theory expressly rejects the existence of a, a an objective present. 
um, mm. which is ironically the opposite of what Craig himself endorses. Um, he endorses a view that is very much the A theory called presentism. Um, yeah. Now, the thing is, is that if you were to read um, Craig's best events of the Kalam, which is in the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, he says that from start to finish, the Kalam is predicated on the A theory of time. On the B theory, the universe never comes into being. It always exists as a tenseless space-time block. Um, and so even if there is a beginning to it, it's kind of like the first inch on a ruler. Just because there's a first inch on the ruler does not mean that the universe, the ruler would say have to begin to exist. Um, your time, yeah. when you look at time to try to establish a beginning, it just means that the ruler has an edge, or the universe right. would so have an so, edge. Yeah. So he would say it has uh, a first moment, but it didn't begin to exist, didn't come into existence. Correct. Um, it's important to note that you could be a B theorist and still be a theist, and hold that God created the universe out of nothing. Um, but what would happen in that case is that you wouldn't be able to use the Kalam cosmological argument to establish that fact. It's kind of something you'd have to take on like a, a blind faith uh, or divine revelation sort of thing. So it's not incoherent to say if the B theory is true that God couldn't have created the universe from nothing. It's just that the Kalam doesn't get you there. So we've all been uh, taking as an assumption here um, that the B theory of time is incompatible with the Kalam. Yes. Um, and so are we justified in that assumption? I, I've seen some people push back on that and say, no, that the, the Kalam cosmological argument is compatible with the B theory of time. Do we think that's a misguided approach? Or um, do we think that there's... We, we should continue in our assumption that, you know, the B theory is incompatible with the Kalam. What do we think there? So I actually think that maybe the B theory is compatible with the Kalam. Um, you can still say that the universe began to exist, I think, in much the same way that anything else began to exist on B theory. Um, because on B theory, uh, all the objects in the universe that begin to exist just begin to exist in the sense that they have a first moment, I think. They, uh, it would just, we'd have to modify Craig's definition of begins to exist slightly. Uh, it presupposes that beginning to exist is a tense matter. It says he is existing at T, the entities existing at T is a tense fact. So if the universe were to begin to exist, uh, it's existing at a its first moment would have to be a tense fact. But of course, that's not true on B-theory. So in order for a B-theorist to say that the universe began to exist, um, they'd have to define beginning to exist differently. Um, but other than that, I think the definition, uh, if you get rid of that part of the definition, then you can say the universe began to exist on B-theory. So uh, Ben and I have gone back and forth on this uh, outside of the episode uh, I disagree. I think not only do you have to get rid of part four of uh, the tensed facts, um, I think the B-theorist or an atheist B-theorist would say that there is a state of affairs in the actual world in which the entity E, namely the universe, exists timelessly. So time would only be defined 
as within the universe on the B theory, right? There is no uh, grand uh, timeline or metaphysical timeline that the universe's existence would be predicated in. So if you think of, say, the physical universe existing as an object and God existing as an object, um, there would have to be a state of affairs in the actual world in which the universe did not exist. And I don't think you could say at least on the basis of um, things beginning to exist in time, which is what our, which is what premise one would be predicated on, to say that you could extend that to a timeless entity like the universe as a whole. Um, I'd like to think, if you think of, say, like the multiverse, um, not, not that you have to believe in a multiverse, but just conceptually, you would think of a number of universes that are not causally interactive, um, but they all exist. There was never a point that any of them failed to exist. And time is simply defined inside of each one of those universes um, with their own time coordinate systems and whatever else. So um, I think, I mean, given what Craig has written, he seems to indicate he doesn't think it is. He says some people believe it might be possible, um, but they would have to formulate it. Um, I think that is a, a pretty hard ask. Yeah. Um, I have a brief response to that, to John here. Um, so I think that even on B-theory, the universe can satisfy that third condition, that there's no state of affairs in the actual world in which E exists timelessly. Uh, that's a condition for it to begin to exist. Um, I think it can satisfy that condition because... The universe is, by definition, all of space and time, and so there can't be any state of affairs in which all of space and time uh, exists timelessly. It, by definition, involves time. Hmm. Okay, so we all disagree on whether or not the B-theory of time is compatible or not with the Kalam. And so, John, we know that you lean more towards the B theory of time with the new compose. Uh, uh, ben, where do you fall on the? Pro- How do you feel about the first premise? Where do do you think it's something that we should concede or accept, or do you do you have other concerns with it? Uh, I have a lot of concerns, but uh, I'm willing to concede it for now, I guess, because that would just be really hard to get into, and I haven't prepared to. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. Where I'm on it today, so one, I, I'm sensitive to the, there's, there is an, uh, Craig and all other defenders say that there is an implicit theory of time is assumed in this, um, premise. So that causes me worry because I want to know, like, which theory of time we, we is hmm. more likely true. And however, the answer, that question is answer, I think would push me more away, more or less away from uh, accepting this premise. The other uh, worry that I have with it is that really with the mind-body problem. So I would, so since I'm physicalist in the sense that I think that the physical universe is causally closed, I don't think that there's causes from outside. I think that the first premise of the Kalam should, would be more accurate to say that whatever begins to begins to exist has a physical cause, and that's completely that keeps that intuition intact that we have. Um, 
without and so but uh, and so I just I don't think that you get when, when, once you frame the premise like that I don't think it's of any and the intuitions we have I don't think it does a whole lot of good for the Kalam cosmological argument I think it takes the nuances of language to kind of get this premise to fit this model but that's just where I'm at today with it so let's let's move to the second premise how do how do we feel about the second premise it's false <laughs> <laughs> so this is the second pr- premise for review is that uh, the the universe began to exist. So th- this is uh, this premise can be interpreted in several different several different ways, and depending on the ways they're interpreted, it's going to appeal to different intuitions. So before we were talking about the definition of the universe being all of causal reality, correct? All of uh, all of. Uh, causally connected physical reality. Causally connected physical reality. Right, not all of causal reality, because then that would include God if God existed. That's a good point, yes. yes. Good, 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 good catch. Um, so that's how we're defining here. So we're saying all of that began to exist 15-some-odd billion years ago in the first moments of a Big Bang. Correct? That's that's right. more or less how the argument goes. Right. So, or yeah, for that premise. So, where how, how do we feel about that 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 premise? I know y'all prepared uh, a little bit of stuff for this, right? Right. So, there's two ways to go about it. Um, I prefer to look at it on the scientific grounds because this is where um, the apologists like to get a good a bit of mileage um, expounding on science, making it sound as if it supports a theistic premise. Um, so what I want to do is lay out exactly what the scientific evidence entails and what it does not. So, uh, Einstein's general relativity, it paints a picture of the universe expanding from a hot, dense state. But when we rewind the picture back, um, we go about 15 billion years into the past and we stop at what is known as the first Planck second. And that is 10 to the negative 43 seconds. So, um, extremely, extremely small scale. That is the smallest scale of time that can be defined coherently, at least according to our current physics. Um, and at that point, general relativity as a theory breaks down, and we can no longer describe what happens beyond that point. Classically. Classical Cla- mechanics just breaks down. Right. And so um, once you get down to that scale, everything is so... Uh, packed tightly together, all of these quantum mechanical forces that we know exist actually start becoming relevant, right? So like like a lot of forces, um, you know, I'm technically exerting gravity on Ben, even though he's hundreds of miles away, right? Um, yeah. But it's so weak at the distance that it's immaterial. But if we were to get super close, that force would have an effect. And so it's kind of like... Be careful when you say it's immaterial. Right. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> In um, this context, it matters. <laughs> yes. Oh man, I'm the father. I'm supposed to make the dad jokes. <laughs> um. So, so basically, uh, once you get down to that 
an incredibly dense state, the quantum mechanical forces at play uh, have a big role in what's going to happen next. And we do not have a working theory of quantum gravity. Um, so that issue is basically unresolved. Um, there are a few candidates for how we could do quantum gravity, but there's nothing that any of the candidates can predict that we can verify. Um, and there's a lot of kind of unresolved assumptions of which we don't know whether or not they're true. So... Um, the important thing is, is that you get to the first Planck second, and we're done. There is nothing to say that before the first Planck second, there was a, phys a state of absolutely nothing physical. That is, to go beyond what uh, the science tells us. Um, and it's just, that's just not a justifiable assumption. Um, as a matter of fact, um, if you were to take some theories of quantum gravity and to apply them, um, you can create uh, scientific models of the universe that don't require there to be a beginning to the physical universe. Um, so one of the uh, current well-defined uh, models we could define is known as Augre Graton. And so, in this model, the universe is infinite into the past, um, and it looks, the universe, if you look at it like a shape, it's like an hourglass. It kind of goes from a positive infinity all the way to negative infinity, with a point in the middle representing our Big Bang. Um, mm. And that point would be where the entropy in the universe was at its lowest, and on each side of that point, an arrow of time goes in that direction as entropy increases. Um, and actually, um, uh, Sean Carroll, a physicist who debated William Lane Craig, brought this up in their debate. Um, and in the following days, there was a, it was a kind of like a conference. And one of Craig's co-authors, James Sinclair, presented a paper on the A versus B theory of time. And uh, Sean Carroll pressed on this point. And at the very end of the talk, uh, Jim Sinclair admitted that, yes, on the Agregaton model, it is infinite into the past. Uh, so it's, it's not as this that we don't have a way to, to look at things. And this is not the only model. Um, yeah. Yeah, we could, we could go into other ones, but the, the point is, is that once you start trying to solve the problem of quantum gravity, um, it's not at all clear that there had to be a state of nothing before the first Planck second. There's no doctrine of creation ex nihilo that goes along with this Big Bang cosmology. That's a that's an added appendage, right? To the Big Bang cosmology. Ben, ben, ben what are your thoughts on the second premise? Oh, on the second premise. So the scientific support for it. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I tend to respond to that by just being kind of agnostic and having the epistemic humility to admit that I'm not qualified to assess uh, the scientific aspects of this. I'm um, with you. I'm with yeah, you. I'm, I'm we're not cosmologists. A, yeah, more of a philosopher. But, um, yeah, my impression from what I've read uh, from more scientifically-minded people is that uh, we should be agnostic and open to the possibility of even an infinite past. I don't know. So, so 
w- one thing I think that's very important to note here is that if you were to look at, and do a survey of contemporary cosmologists and physicists, you'll find that very few of them believe in a personal creator god or a supernatural being. And even the ones that do, like Don Page, say, hey, this isn't a good argument. Um, and I think the reason for that is because it's predicated on these philosophical assumptions. And it's a pointing to something beyond the which beyond the point which science can't talk about, right? So even if you were a uh, believe there was a first moment, uh, like say Alexander Vilenkin, um, you could just be a B theorist, and you would have you know that kind of a uh, that kind of a model, and the universe still just always exists. Um, and granted, I think Vilenkin has a much more uh, intricate theory about the beginning of the universe, but um, th- the point is is that you could have atheists who think the universe has a beginning. You could have theists who think the universe is infinite into the past. Um, you could have atheists who think the universe is infinite into the past. Um, it's not... It, the science isn't going to get you there, is my point. Uh, either way, even if it has a beginning, there are coherent positions for an atheist to take uh, for a universe without a beginning. Or, I'm sorry, with a beginning. So, when you say coherent... So... I want to kind of distinguish coherence and plausibility because at the end of the day, our aim is what's true. So, um, yeah, there's a coherent um, view. I, I think we can all grant that. Um, but, but, but which one's likely true? Do we, do, we, do we have plausible models that have the universe... Um, not beginning to exist? And the answer seems to be yes. There are these plausible models. Uh, I I think Alan Guth um, is, but no one really knows. It's kind of, it's still an open question. Um, That's that's at least my take of it. I I, I certainly take, my feelings on the second premise is I take the the agnostic route. I, I think Ben's right. I'm not a cosmologist. But it definitely doesn't seem as cut and dry as someone like Craig likes to seem to make it. Right. I I think, yes, we are not cosmologists, but we can see what cosmologists say. And oh, so, sure. Right? Yeah. And so they are presenting us with a number of um, models that are available or different philosophical takes that we could have on, say, what a, a universe that did... That has a first moment, but was didn't come into being or didn't need a cause. Um, I think, uh, ironically, if you were to look at one of the pieces of scientific evidence that gets appealed to, is the you'll hear the Borg-Guth-Vilenkin theorem that supposedly proves that the universe uh, had to have a beginning. Um, and if um, I don't know anything about Arvin Bord, but Alexander Vilenkin and Alan Guth are both admitted atheists. Um, so uh, Guth happens to think the universe is infinite into the past, uh, whereas Vilenkin doesn't. But they have very different they have they have different takes because the science is unsettled. Um, yeah, yeah, and and just as a quick note on the the BVG theorem. Um, it's only as good as its assumptions, and one of its assumptions is 
that the universe has an average expansion rate. Um, and a lot of these models say a, a uh, if you had an oscillating universe and it goes through a, a big bang and then a big crunch, um, it would not have an average expansion rate, a positive expansion rate. And so you would avoid something like the, uh, the BVG theorem. Okay. Um, so I guess that wraps things up for the second premise. Ben, ben, did you have anything else to cover on the second premise? Well, are we done with the scientific part or? No, no, no. We could, we could, if we want to say, say more, we can. I mean, I don't have more to say about science, scientific stuff, but did John have more to say about scientific things or? Um, we want to think... move into more philosophical considerations with the second premise. Uh, is, a is that, is that, is that right? Well, I would, yeah. Yeah, let's do that then. Let's move into okay. some more of the philosophical consideration. All right. So I'm going to draw heavily upon Graham Oppie's book, Philosophical Perspectives on Infinity, and what I say and what follows. Um, so I'll we'll start with the case of Hilbert's Hotel. Uh, William Lane Craig uses this pretty often. Uh, imagine a hotel with infinitely many rooms. Each room is already occupied, but a new guest shows up and requests a room. Because there are infinitely many rooms, the guests can be accommodated if the people in room 1 move to room 2, the ones in room 2 move to room 3, and so on. But the hotel was already full. This is just one example of the weird properties of Hilbert's hotel. But I won't go into the rest for time's sake. Uh, Craig wants us to conclude from this scenario that actual infinites of any kind, and an actually infinite past in particular, are so absurd that we should consider them metaphysically impossible. If any actual infinite, or at least an actually infinite past is possible, then Hilbert's Hotel must also be possible, according to him. But the possibility of Hilbert's Hotel has absurd implications, so the possibility of any actual infinite also has absurd implications and should be rejected. That's the argument. But actually, Oppie thinks there's a way to accept the metaphysical possibility of actual infinites while granting that Hilbert's Hotel is too absurd to be possible. And it's not inconsistent to do that because the Hilbert's Hotel scenario involves more than the mere existence of a hotel with infinitely many occupied rooms. It also involves the process of adding and removing certain numbers of guests. And it's this process of adding and removing guests that seems to generate all the absurd features of the thought experiment. But then why not say that the absurdity lies in the idea of a hotel that both has infinitely many rooms and has guests added and removed, rather than the idea of there being infinitely many rooms on its own. Do you have any thoughts on that so far? So, I think, I def, I, I agree, I think a, a, a way I, the way I tend to interpret that is, yes, I agree it's the addition and re, the sub, subtraction of guests from the hotel that causes the absurdities. Or the supposed absurdities. I think part of the problem here is that you need to be very careful when you're talking about addition and subtraction, excuse me, uh, with infinite sets. Um, and when, when, when Craig makes his examples, he's not being very rigorous in terms of how you define things, and he, he uses, um, the, you, you, you would, you would, uh, add and subtract the same number and get different results. You know, add, add an infinite minus an infinite and you have two different answers, therefore it's a contradiction. Well, once you're very careful and define your sets properly, um, you find that you actually get different answers and that no 
uh, contradiction actually occurs. This is Cantorian set theory. This is the foundation for most of modern mathematics. Um, and there is no logical contradiction that has been shown um, that is the basis of most of modern mathematics. I mean, if you can show an explicit contradiction, I'm sure there's a Nobel Prize waiting for you. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, I agree with that. So I was going to go on to address uh, Craig's response to Oppie. Uh, you know, Oppie said that you can consistently say uh, that actual infinites are possible, but that an actual infinite exactly like Hilbert's Hotel is not metaphysically possible. And so Craig concedes that, but he says that that point is trivial. Um, and he goes on to say that he can set up the thought experiment however he wants. It's his thought experiment. So if he chooses for it to involve the addition and removal of guests, then it does involve that. But I think that reply misses the point because it doesn't show that the absurdity lies in actual infinite simpliciter rather than uh, infinite full hotels with the additional property of having guests added and subtracted. So, yeah, I don't see how Craig's reply works. Yeah, if, if uh, you could somehow not subtract an infinite or modify the past, right, that would that would basically bar Hilbert's hotel from being possible. Yeah, yeah it would. Or something uh, analogous to Hilbert's hotel that would have the same absurdity. <laughs> Wouldn't be possible. But there's another important objection to Hilbert's Hotel. Uh, and I saw this in a YouTube conversation on the Quam with Alex Malpass uh, and Wes Morstan. Morstan makes the point that an infinite past seems relevantly different from Hilbert's Hotel in that the contents of past moments are fixed. They aren't able to move to different moments, like the guests at Hilbert's Hotel are able to move to different rooms. And as such, uh, the absurdities of Hilbert's Hotel don't clearly carry over to an infinite past. Um, huh. Yeah. That's yeah, an interesting point. Yeah, what do you think about that? Well, it's the first time I'm hearing it, so <laughs> yeah. I've gotta I gotta digest it some more before yeah. like I, I certainly get the where, where 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 they're coming from because um obviously the past is fixed, so um mm-hmm. numbers of people in hotel rooms are not fixed and if they the contradiction arises from these people changing rooms, but it, we can if we if we don't have that a, that aspect in the past, right. yeah, um, yeah. Although you might question whether the past is fixed, it might depend to some extent on what theory of time you accept. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's that's an interesting question to explore. Uh, I agree. Yeah, I have some more thoughts about this, so. Uh, I agree with Morrison that there don't seem to be any beings in the actual world with the power to rearrange the past. Uh, but I don't think that means it's metaphysically impossible for the past to change. Maybe there's some merely possible being with the power to change the past, or maybe there's some other reason it's possible for the past to change. Um, and Morrison himself goes on to concede it's plausibly conceivable for past events to have been different or differently ordered, he just thinks that now that those moments have passed, they're fixed. But they could have, could have not passed in the first place. They're not passed in the same order. Uh, and that possibility gives rise to similar absurdities. So I think... Well, sorry. You know. Well, no, it just seems strange to say, yes, the past could have been different. But isn't the point that 
where we are now, we couldn't modify the past, right? So, yes, it could have been different, but it just is what it is, with brute fact or necessity or whatever, um, and once it's passed, it's done. Or am yeah. I misunderstanding the appeal to possibility? Right, so... No, he's dis- he's he's agreeing that uh, once once it's passed, it's done, it's fixed. But the the point is that maybe there's a possible world where it never passed in the first place, uh, in the same way it did in the actual past. And so, okay, uh, that seems yeah. that seems fine. Yeah, I don't think that helps the. It, I don't think it helps the case for the Hilbert Hotel analogy. You don't. You don't think it leads to the same absurdities? Uh, so, I think it does because, um, you can still have, like, two different possible worlds, um, one with, uh, an event added, uh, and so you can compare the two different possible worlds and say that, uh, the one with the event added has the same number of, even though the past is full in the possible world without the event added, um, once the event is added, it can, you can add an event even though it's full, basically. And, well, isn't uh, it, I mean, you could do this, it would theoretically be a problem for a comparison, but if we're talking about the actual world, which is where you would need there to be this sort of a thing where you could do the addition, right? Um, so right, so like, there there wouldn't be this process of adding because there wouldn't be any being uh, that had the power to add, is what I'm saying, in, in that same world. But um, you could compare possible worlds, one with an event, with one more event. It wasn't added by some being, but one with one more event uh, and another with one fewer event. And I, I don't know exactly what the analogy is here to... The, the rooms being filled, I guess. So the the uh, moments in time are full of objects or something. <laughs> um, but <laughs> so like a, a a particular slice of time would have all of its space filled or something. Uh, <laughs> it definitely starts but, getting very esoteric. I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm with but, you. So. We we don't think Hilbert's Hotel supports the second premise, or at least it, it's it doesn't do it successfully. Right, and so we were talking about Morstan's uh, objection to Hilbert's Hotel, yeah. and uh, so where we just left off was um, that Morstan was conceding the conceivability of the past having been different, and that that leads to the same absurdities that Hilbert's Hotel leads to, okay. and so. So Morrison is basically there conceding that his objection isn't decisive. But so I think that Morrison could just uh, use Oppie's strategy here to reply to Quam, which is to trace the absurdity of the possibility of the past being both infinite, trace the absurdity to the possibility of the past being both infinite and rearrangeable, not to just the possibility of the past being infinite. Um, and so then he could reject the possibility of a rearrangeable infinite past, but, you know, allow that there could be an infinite past. I'm with you. Yeah. Okay, so, um, so how do we feel about the second premise? So, I think there is a sense in which, we, so we, we, I think we would all here pretty much accept contemporary 
Big Bang Cosmology. Uh, I don't know if we, we we have the expertise to in any way substantively challenge it. <laughs> no. no. So there are more uh, cases that are used, like thought experiments that are used to defend the premise that I could talk about if you want. Yeah. So um, that's what I was moving into. So, but so we think we don't think Hilbert's Hotel. Um, right. Props this one up, but there's some other thought experiments. There experiments that can be used to support this. Right. So there's also Craig's library, William Lane Craig's library. Um, so imagine a library with infinitely many books, each of which has a different natural number printed on it. So that's the numbers one uh, and onward. One, two, three, four. Um, uh, the number of all the books is the same as the number of books with even numbers on them. But that seems absurd because surely there would be a greater number, total number of books, considering that the total set of books includes the ones with even numbers, but also the ones with odd numbers. Um, but yeah, there are other absurdities, but I won't talk about those right now. Um, Oppie criticizes Craig's point that we wouldn't believe anyone who told us that the number of books with even numbers was equal to the total number of books. He points out that even if this is true, and even if we could never be justified in believing uh, that the total number was the same as the number of books with even numbers on it, uh, it might be metaphysically possible for those numbers to be the same. And so it's okay. kind of distinguishing between the metaphysical and epistemic questions. Another important point Oppie makes is that even though adding a book to the library wouldn't change the cardinality of the total set of books, it would change the holding of the library. So that means the library would then contain a book it didn't contain before. And it seems weird that the holding can change while the cardinality stays the same, but that's just a difference between infinite sets and finite sets. Um, and so okay. this is a, he's trying to address Craig's worry that adding a book to the library doesn't lead to there being more books because, uh, the set, uh, before the addition it has the same cardinality as the set after. Um, but I wonder, does he really successfully address that worry? Because doesn't the cardinality have to be different for there to be more books after the book is added? Uh, my understanding, which may be wrong, is that sets with the same cardinality, uh, have the same number of members. In other words, they have the same size, but then one set can't contain more members than another with the same cardinality. Right, they'd have to be in one-to-one correspondence. Yeah, so I'm not sure if Offie really does address this well enough. I think I think the the core the core objection, at least the way I look at it, is more along the lines of defining the set uh, of how you're going to do the addition and subtraction. Uh, to uh, from one set to another, and it's basically the same thing we mentioned with Hilbert's Hotel. Um, once you define the sets carefully enough, um, I don't think a contradiction is going to resolve. True. Mm-hmm. That, for for me, that's the the core of a priori uh, arguments against the existence of an actual infinite by trying to show a direct contradiction. Um, I think it's important to note that. What is being appealed to is metaphysical impossibility, not logical impossibility. Um, it, it, you know, for one one philosopher's metaphysical impossibility is another philosopher's oddity. It's not really anything decisive, in my view. 
Um, and given everything we know about infinites and infinite sets and infinite maths, there is no contradiction uh, whatsoever to be shown there, at least not logically. Um, and I think once you get into different theories of time, it, we, we mentioned the A and B theory, but that's not necessarily exhaustive. Um, there's the thought that, say, time is not fundamental, um, which is ironically a view that I think physicist Don Page leans to, who is an evangelical Christian. Um, so you could get into these different uh, states. I think uh, certain philosophers disagree even with the dichotomy between the two or the trichotomy with time not being fundamental. Basically, that we might be looking at the problem in the wrong way. Um, it, it's just—it's something that's very hard for us to grasp, simply because we are minds that exist in time. <laughs> so, Ben, you had some thoughts on Mackey's critique. I did. So, um, yeah, I'm gonna set this up sort of by departing from what Mackey says, um, but then I'll lead into his critique. So. Um, he criticizes, uh, Kalam proponents assessment of thought experiments involving the completion of an infinite task, like counting from zero to infinity. Uh, proponents like Craig and JP Moreland think these thought experiments demonstrate that it's impossible to form an actually infinite collection by successive addition, or in other words, to traverse an infinity. Um, so why? Well, take the counting example. At any point in this example of counting from zero to infinity, uh, the person will be saying or thinking of a finite number, not an infinite one. So there's no point at which the person reaches infinity. Now, I think the opponent of the Quran can simply grant that counting from zero to infinity is impossible and continue rejecting the second premise. Uh, after all, the set of natural numbers has infinitely many members, despite the fact that each of its members is a finite number. So as long as all the moments in the universe's history can be put in a one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers, uh, the universe has an infinite past, even without an infinity at the moment. <laughs> um, but that's my point. That's not Mackey's point. Mackey takes a different approach uh, that Felipe, Felipe Leon has defended on his blog, Exapologist, and in a paper called Moreland on the Impossibility of Traversing the Infinite, a critique. Uh, as I see it, the motivation for Mackey's approach begins with the observation that premise two of the Kalam holds as long as the universe began, even if it began infinitely long ago, because, yeah, then the universe began to exist. Um, and Oppie makes this observation in his paper, Cra uh, Craig, Mackey, and the Kalam Cosmological Argument. So the opponent of the Kalam is not interested in arguing for the possibility of an infinitely distant beginning, but for the possibility of a past with no beginning at all. Uh, right away, it becomes apparent that the case of counting from zero to infinity is disanalogous to the possibility that the opponent is proposing, because that case has a starting point at zero. What if we modify the case and try to conceive of someone counting to infinity with, without ever starting? Well, then at every point in the past, the person has, or at least could have, already counted an infinite set of numbers. So the person never has to reach infinity. He or she is always already there. And this means we can grant that counting from zero to infinity is impossible, because infinity can never be reached, and at the same time claim that a beginningless past is possible. And that's Mackey's insight, and Felipe Leon 
that's at least Felipe Leon's uh, interpretation. Of, right. uh, you, you don't start from zero if you have an. You don't. There is no starting point if this <laughs> pass is infinite, right? Right. Well, I don't know. I, there could be maybe an infinite past with an infinitely distant beginning, but um, yeah, that's it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to have a beginning. At least it would seem. So, so how do we feel about the argument up to up to this point? So we've 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 seen some pretty substantial objections, I think, to the first two premises, and so and we were already saying that this was strongest part of the argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like we've got some grounds to at least be skeptical. I think all parties to the to the discussion should be able to agree that that we have grounds to be skeptical of both premises. Yeah. Mainly what I've done is criticize the positive arguments in favor of the second premise, the philosophical arguments at least. So I haven't really given an argument against it, but, um, yeah, we have reason to be skeptical for that reason, that there's any good reason to believe it. Okay. And so I, I guess I just want to close this episode then by saying let's, let, let's grant those first two premises. And move to the second part, how, how we get to this personal being. So this, we're going to say that the universe has a cause, but that this cause is God. So that's obviously the move I have the most problem with, because I, I, I just don't think that move works for, for a variety of uh, considerations. But w- w- how do you all feel about it? Well, well there's a, a oh, lot to ahead, there. There are a, a lot, lot of aspects. Maybe we so, should make that its own episode then. Because <laughs> that, that can play in with teleological arguments too. Okay, well, I guess we'll go ahead and end it there. And we'll hopefully there'll be a part two that we'll do. We, we might uh, combine this with some other cosmological argument musings in the future. Um, so stay tuned for that. Um, I want to thank Ben and John for joining me today. And uh, for coming on and being part of the Real Atheology Project. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Awesome. And we'll see you guys soon. If you appreciate the tone and content of what Real Atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review for us on iTunes. All music was created by Work of Wolves. <laughs>